0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: Seemed like it was well, not that long ago that it was a long time until the Winter Olympics were going to be here, but opening ceremonies are now bright and early Friday morning. That's our time, bright and I mean bright and early. Opening ceremonies start at 6 a.m. our time, so get your coffee, get yourself up, set that alarm, and if not, set your PVR if you really want to see it. But they are they are here. But the second those opening ceremonies finish, competition begins in Pyeongchang. And when that happens, Canadians are going to be expecting, I think, I believe, big things from our athletes. We did very, very well. When I say we, of course, let me clarify, I have not participated in any of the Winter Olympics, but we being Canadians, Canadians have done very, very well, did well in Vancouver, did very, very well in Sochi. I don't think people are expecting anything different from that. And to that end, we as taxpayers put a lot of money into making sure that they will have a chance to do well again. But what should the government be doing? How much money should we be putting in, and what are we getting for our money? Dr. Lucy Tebow is a sports management professor at Brock University who specializes in government involvement in sports. She joins me now. Dr. Thibault, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. Um, As I say, we we do put lots of money, relatively speaking, into Own the Podium and other programs to make sure that Canadians have successful, or to try to make sure Canadians have successful Olympians when these games roll around. What do we, do you think, expect from that investment?
2: Well, we obviously expect uh, medals and and top performances from from our athletes, Uh, but some of that money also goes for sport participation. Uh, but there is an emphasis, uh, certainly, on uh, high-performance sport. And the showcase is, of course, the Olympic uh, and Paralympic Games. So so that's certainly the platform where, you know, politicians and, um, you know, leaders at uh, Sport Canada and own the podium, uh, you know, want to see athletes uh, on the podium.
1: And you say, I mean, participation sports, certainly that money goes there. But there aren't too many politicians that put the money in, I don't think, maybe directly. They want to see medals. When they put sure. the money in, they, it's nice to say we have kids playing hockey or playing basketball, but really, we're trying to win medals with this money.
2: We are, we are, but you know, we do recognize the fact that, um, you know, if if we don't put some money in the grassroots system then you know at some point the system is going to break and we're not going to have any up and coming you know athletes to take over for our retiring olympians and Paralympians uh but yeah you're right certainly a lot of the money goes to high performance sport
1: do you believe that there is a connection, that if if our athletes in the Olympics, or in pro sports, but right now it's the Olympics, if our athletes in the Olympics do really, really well, do you believe that rubs off on kids? And if some kid sees someone doing bobsleigh or doing whatever else, do you think kids take that and participate in sports? Because that's one of the theories, that if we can show we're great, other kids will pick this up.
2: Sure, and and a number of our high performance training centers use that to solicit more money for uh, high performance programs. But I think the studies have shown that, for the most part, um, you know, there's, there's no like sustainable uh, increase in participation if we do well in certain sports. Um, the registration may go up shortly after the Olympics, uh, but and, and Paralympic Games. But in the long run. We don't necessarily sustain those numbers.
1: And not only that, but I'm—I I'm, always have had a hard time believing that when John Montgomery, for example, won in skeleton, that a sure. lot of parents were lining up to sign their kids up for something <laughs> called skeleton. <laughs> for it, sure. It's—it's—you it, know, maybe in some sports, maybe in hockey, if we win a gold, everyone because we know women. I mean, if there is an example of this working, I think women's hockey might be that thing.
2: Sure, and and yeah, where you know a sport like ringette lost a lot of members because you know, girls were now playing hockey and, you know, ice hockey is in the Olympic program so so for sure that, that makes an impact. Um, you know, but John Montgomery was uh you know, in a sport that's um you know, doesn't have a lot of facilities and uh, you know, so it's difficult for, for parents or for kids to say, Hey, I'm gonna do luge or bobsledding or skeleton.
1: Yeah, if you don't live in Calgary or Vancouver, sure. I guess or Whistler really, yeah. I guess it is, it's really tough to do that still. Absolutely. There was a time in this country, and I don't think it was that long ago, probably two thousand six, maybe even that recently, that we as Canadians, it seemed anyway, Doctor, were pretty content seeing our athletes participate and do their best but not necessarily win medals we wanted them to go and say oh i did my best i put up a personal best i know i finished 28th in the world but what do you want i do you agree that those times have completely changed that that's no longer really acceptable to canadians
2: well i think uh possibly um you know with the um you know, in 2003, that's when the IOC made the decision to select Vancouver as the, um, the host for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. And, um, you know, this was going to be the third time that we were hosting the Olympic Games. Um, and in the previous two games, so Calgary in 88 and Montreal in 76, Canada had never won a gold medal while the host. And we were the only country as a host <laughs> never to win a gold medal. So, Own the Podium was created as a result of, of that, you know, IOC decision and also, um, you know, because the stakeholders within Can- Canadian sports system wanted to make sure that it didn't happen again a third time.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Continuing our conversation with Dr. Lucy Tebow from Brock University, professor of sport management, about money and sports and Olympics and funding and all these things and what we should be doing. And doctor, just before the break, you were talking about Own the Podium and everyone is familiar with Own the Podium now and what it's done and you're right, it was spurred, of course you were right, but it was spurred because we did so poorly in our home Olympics the two previous times, we didn't want to have that embarrassment again. But because it was so successful, because we did so well in Vancouver, It seems to have set a bit of a precedent. We couldn't stop that now if we wanted to, could we? Uh,
2: Probably not. There was a lot of pressure uh, because on the podium was really supposed to be, you know, until the Vancouver Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. Uh, And I think, you know, given our results at those games, uh, there was a lot of pressure on the politicians to keep that program going.
1: We got a taste for winning.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we do well in winter sports. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we keep doing well.
1: And some people might argue, and I think there's a a fair argument to be had, a fair debate about, should this be the role that government plays to be paying for athletes? At the same time, Canada, for whatever reason, is notoriously tight in the private sector for funding athletes. So if we don't get government money, they don't get paid.
2: Correct. Although I have to say that Own the Podium is a non-profit entity. It does get money from uh, Sport Canada, which is a unit of uh, Canadian heritage. So it is Sport Canada as the federal government. Um, So Own the Podium does get money from Sport Canada, but it also gets money from the corporate sector, from the Canadian Olympic Committee. So it's not all um, taxpayer dollars.
1: Is is that because, and again, I go back to my point, there have been many athletes over the years who have had great difficulty finding corporate sponsorships by themselves. Mm-hmm. Has owned the Podium simply then organized it better so it's been able to do a better job of extracting money from the corporate world?
2: Well, it, if it, it does, it's um, you know, through the Canadian Olympic uh, Foundation, um, but it's, it's also really, you know, it's not matching necessarily athletes with corporate sponsors. That's not the role of Own the Podium. Own the Podium is really about target funding for sports that we're, you know, about to medal or, or you know, sports that we are al- almost guaranteed to, to, to medal in. So um, uh, Own the Podium basically, you know, gets funding from various sources and does help, you know, the high-performance Uh, aspect of our sports system.
1: And this has been both lauded and criticized in some sense because athletes that are of the elite there that are competing on the world stage, they're carded athletes. So they all Mm -hmm. get some standard base amount of money. But then as you say, the ones who are the super elite, who are closest to winning medals tend to get more through own the podium. And some have said, well, you know, if I'm ranked 16th in the world and I'm not quite there yet, if I could get some of that on the podium money, I might actually win one, as mm-hmm. opposed to just giving it to the second or third-ranked person. What do you say to that? Is that the right way they're doing it?
2: Well, there is um, in the Sport Canada Athlete Assistance Program. That's the carded system where uh, you know the senior card uh, senior carded athletes. Get um, I think it's almost uh, it's a little over $1,700 a month as a stipend for living and training allowance, while the uh, the the junior card or the developmental card, as they call it, uh, gets a little over $1,000 a month, and and those are for the athletes who are not quite there yet, but they're on way to uh, achieving podium results. Uh, on the podium. Um, as a sort of a separate program, targets sport and gives uh you know money to sports where you know again we 're about to podium or uh, or medal, uh, and it 's up to the national sport organizations to take that on the podium money and, and decide how it 's going to uh, distribute it, whether it goes directly to athletes or whether it goes to uh, providing more training camps, more opportunities for for athletes to get experience in, in uh, international competition, so they send a larger team, for example so so it 's up really to the national sport organizations. To, to decide how that money is spent, best spent to achieve podium results. Because if you do achieve podium results, own the podium will keep funding you. Mm. And so, so there's definitely an incentive for, you know, for Canadians, for athletes to do well at the Olympic and Paralympic Games.
1: So you can quantify then a payoff or a benefit to an athlete for their success. Can you quantify what this does or what this buys for Canadians. Can you is, can you look at the warm feelings that you get sure. when you cheer for an athlete and they win and say, you know what, yeah, that was worth whatever amount of money. Can you, <laughs> it's a really tough thing to do.
2: Yeah, it is. It is, but obviously, you know, a lot of governments in the world are involved in sport in amateur sport, in uh, quotation marks. Um, <laughs> some,
1: some for good reasons and yeah. <laughs> some for less good reasons.
2: Sure, but, but ultimately national pride, national unity, and national identity are all, you know, byproducts of success. Yeah, And that's, that raises the question, events.
1: what's that worth?
2: Yeah, so Sport and Canada probably funds, uh, it's almost $200 million to high-performance sport and sport participation. Uh, and so, you know, it is, it is a lot of money. And, you know, athletes directly get that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, around $30 million of that money collectively. There's about, I think, uh, 1,900 athletes who get carded by Sport Canada. Uh, So get these monthly stipends.
1: It is, uh, you know, after the Vancouver Games, I would think during the Games and afterwards for a period of time in the warm glow of Vancouver, I think we would all say, you know what, that was money, very, very well spent. And the Olympics are just starting, and if we don't do well, I think a lot of people say, why are we spending all this money? Sure. But uh, it's it, you you pay it, and you hope your lottery number comes up, and you hope that it works out well yeah, for you. Yeah,
2: and that on the day of the competition, you're on.
1: Exactly. Right. And that's thats the, I mean, it's not the luck of the draw, but it's yeah. there's some luck in there. Uh, sure. Dr. Lucy Thibault from Brock Sports Management, really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for thank, doing this. Thank you for having me. It is, uh, it is a bit of a crapshoot. We put all this money in, and you hope that that allows Canadian athletes on the day they compete, as she just said, to be at their best. And if they are, nobody complains about the money we have spent to have an athlete land on the podium because everybody feels good about it.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900-CHML.
1: Yesterday morning, the Juno Award nominations were released, and there were a number of Hamiltonians that were on the list. That was great news. Arkells, somewhat predictably, they are now in that stratosphere. They earned three nominations. Tara Lightfoot was nominated, R&B artist Isque, blues performer Steve Strongman, and the guy behind the song, the piece that you're listening to right there in the background, Brad Cheeseman. Was nominated for best jazz album solo for his album "The Tide Turns." He joins me now, Brad. Congratulations! Thanks, Scott. This, uh, you you, had you been nominated before? No, this is the first time. This is the first time. So, how do you find out? What were you doing yesterday when you found out you were nominated?
3: Um, Well, I went to the. uh, I got an invitation to the. You know, Juno nominee press conference, and uh, my wife and I went to Toronto um, yesterday morning to kind of check it out. A little hopeful, but not really sure what was going to happen. And then, next thing we know, they kind of they call out my name, and yeah, very exciting.
1: You didn't know when they told you to come to the press conference that you were nominated. I had a hunch, but I didn't want to get my hopes up just in case. <laughs> that would have been the cruelest thing anyone could do to you. Hey, Brad, come all the way down to Toronto and sit here and watch other people receive a nice pat on the back. <laughs> that, w- that would have been just mean if they'd done that, but uh, that is great. So when, but so you're sitting there. How long did you have to sit there before you actually got to your category and heard your name? Um,
3: not too long. I mean, the whole whole press conference was only about half an hour so it was maybe about 20 minutes into it
1: and when you hear your name is it like oh that's cool or are you now is your heart just beating out of your chest at this point
3: a little more of the latter
1: yeah. <laughs> See you're a very low-key guy so i don't you know i don't know if you just go oh well you know that's nice or if, or if you're containing this gurgling inferno of excitement, all of a sudden that you know doesn't necessarily come out in jazz, but that is you know going on inside you right then.
3: I what? mean, there's definitely a you know a lot of emotion kind of wrapped up in the. Um, I mean, there, just like the amount of work that kind of goes into making an album and trying to kind of get it out there normally, you can never kind of plan for something like like this to happen you just kind of hope people in, enjoy the music and that it goes over well and to kind of you know hear hear your name called at something like this and be in the company of other artists that you respect or listen to or have kind of come up alongside it's, it's a very very cool experience
1: I suspect I know the answer to this question already but I'll ask it nonetheless when you are creating an album when you're putting it together does it ever cross your mind that this might win an award?
3: I don't. I'm not entirely sure. I think once, like during the writing and stuff, definitely not. Um, I think when it comes time to start figuring out, you know, once I have like the CDs or whatever in my hand, then it's kind of like, okay, well, what what's kind of the goal for this? What what do I want to try and happen with this? And you kind of put feelers out either for the Junos or when we had the Hamilton Music Awards up until recently, you know, kind of whatever, and you kind of hope something will come of it. But,
1: But, I mean, people are always, Brad, people who listen to this are to your face anyway, I would assume, going to say, oh, Brad, this is your best work. This is fantastic. And I'm wondering if you are able to be dispassionate enough about your own work to step back a little bit and say, you know what, this really, really was a terrific album that I put out.
3: Yeah, I mean, this one, um, I mean, each each recording is uh, different. Like, um, jumping back to my, my last album, it was kind of this kind of, um, like, big kind of announcement of what I was trying to do. And this new album felt a lot more um, personal to me in some ways. And I think kind of approaching it from that kind of starting point um, turned it into something bigger than I, I thought it might be. So hearing it like when it was done, there's still a lot of moments where I can kind of listen to how everything came together and be still get kind of goosebumps at the way mm. like, some of the other musicians played certain things. I feel very good about this this new recording for sure.
1: Are you a perfectionist? Are you someone who listens to your album and even after it's been nominated for a a Juno Award and even after it's done very well and it's garnered all kinds of critical acclaim, do you listen to the pieces, the songs that are on there and say, oh, I should have done that differently? Or do you listen and say, no, I got every single thing exactly the way I thought it should be?
3: I think it's a little more of the former. I definitely am... uh, it's all kind of a a journey. I like this uh, quote, I've heard it uh, from a few people that you know art is never finished, it's only abandoned. Like you kind of live with a project for a while and you do as good as you can in that moment and try and kind of capture it. And then in my own experience, you kind of hit a point to where you, you start tinkering with something too much or
1: trying to over-engineer it.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Brad, it is, I think it's pretty clear for a group like our Arkell's, another local group obviously, that get nominated into, what are we going to call them, the spotlight categories. They're really the biggest of the big categories that's going to get all kinds of attention on the show the benefits of that are pretty obvious. They can maybe sell more albums and they can sell more tickets and they get a lot more attention. What about for you? What What are the benefits of a nomination for Brad Cheeseman or for someone even in your category?
3: I think it still is uh, kinda a kind of creates a level of visibility, um, you know, nationally and, and even beyond that, um, we certainly not there before where, you know, a lot of I've had like music played across the country, but as far as my own efforts to tour and really uh, reach new listeners has been kind of limited to kind of uh, Ontario and in Quebec and maybe stretching a little bit into some other places. But I think this kind of helps open up some doors to maybe reach new listeners, maybe some new uh, performance opportunities.
1: Are you, are you speaking inside jazz circles or generally just people interested in music? Because certainly I think everybody in jazz circles probably knows who you are. I'm just wondering, are you saying that now across the country when you go and play that all the jazz fans will be more aware or that you can pull people in who haven't necessarily been exposed to that style?
3: I mean, that's that's the, the big uh, challenges. I would like to think that um, non-jazz listeners might be open to, uh, to hearing the music, and maybe something like being nominated for an award like this would maybe pique someone's interest a little more than just hearing about, oh, I heard there's this jazz musician named Cheeseman playing <laughs> down the street, you know. But, but I don't know. All, all I can really do from my, my side is kind of try and make the best music I can, knowing how to do it like, the way I do. And help that people connect with
1: it one way or another. Brad, you're still a very young man. How old are you now? Twenty nine. Twenty nine, and which is, would you agree that twenty that there are not as many people at twenty nine or around your age as involved in jazz music as in some other genres of music?
3: I think it kind of kind of splits off. I mean, right now it feels like there's this whole. Generation of uh, younger jazz musicians who've been kind of going through a lot of the, the universities who are mm. creating a lot of re- really interesting and kind of really engaging music, and um, which is, which is promising. There are a lot of ta- re- really talented uh, younger jazz musicians, um, but kind of finding the, again finding that kind of appeal to a broader audience is especially challenging for a younger jazz jazz performer. Well, it, it doesn't,
1: a, typically the music, uh, and you can correct me where you disagree, but typically the music doesn't have the same sort of really catchy hooks as a pop song or something that you're going to hear on radio all the time. It takes a little more commitment, I think is the word, to to really become fluent in the language of jazz. Yeah,
3: I think there, there's an element of kind of, being open to and embracing, like, this element of the unknown or with, you know, jazz is kind of largely about improvisation and there can be common threads between, say, the same piece gets played one night as, like, the previous night, but there'll be two different unique performances. Hmm. And I think that kind of asks a bit more of a listener, perhaps.
1: How did, how did you get into jazz? Was there ever a chance you would have not been a jazz musician? You would have been a musician, but was there ever a different format or style that you were interested in? Or were you always a jazz guy?
3: Oh, I was, I was definitely not always uh, a jazz guy. I got introduced, um, to some really exciting music by Charles Mingus towards the end of, uh, high school. And, um, Then kind of learned more about the music when I was studying at Mohawk College, then later Humber College and York University. But it wasn't until I kind of really started trying to, to play the music with other people that I kind of understood it a little more and was more open to hearing different kinds of jazz. Whereas, you know, before I kind of got introduced to it, it was more of the, you know, the prog rock, flag toting.
1: Guy. you you were the rush you were Getty Lee basically <laughs> so now we know where Getty Lee will ultimately end up now that rush isn't touring anymore he will eventually become a jazz bassist somewhere following in yeah, the footsteps of Brad Cheeseman <laughs> uh, just before I let you go for those people who maybe haven't been as exposed to this music haven't heard as much about it or heard of it or heard it you are performing three times in this area in the weeks ahead in fact next Friday, You are performing in Hamilton at Zyla's, which is on James Street North. The day after that, you are at Oakville, at Oakville Town Square. And then March 7, and I don't know if that's open to the public or not, but you are at Long and McQuaid's. So you are around if people want to hear you and your trio playing.
3: Yes, that's correct.
1: Go take a listen because his stuff is, uh, is it's well, it's worthy of a Juno nomination. And, Brad, we will be watching and cheering that it's not just a nomination by the end of this process, that you'll have a little trophy to go along with this, and uh, you can call yourself a Juno Award winner. We're cheering for you.
3: Well, thank you very much.
1: That is Brad Cheeseman, and uh, you can find his stuff online. Uh, excellent, excellent musician. Hamilton guy, too. So go take a listen. <laughs>
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Shortly before Christmas, I decided that it was time to start trying to get a little bit healthier. A lot of you did. Now, I didn't wait for... Now, this was not intentional. I didn't wait for it to be a New Year's resolution. I had sort of jumped the gun. It was before then that I thought, you know, I'm going to start going to the gym, which I've been doing every night. I'm going to start eating somewhat healthier. I'm not going on a... Zero carb, vegan, no sugar diet. I'm not I'm not being ridiculous about it, but like many of you, I thought, okay, I'll try to eat a little bit less of some things. I'll try to not eat as much of other things. I'll try and throw in the odd salad, maybe actually participate in the chewing of some vegetables, you know, all that kind of stuff that people say, oh, they're going to do to try and get themselves healthier. Anyway, long, seg- long intro. Because... One of the things that I was reading or hearing somewhere as this whole process is going on is, you know what's really good for you? You know what really you should try and have, because for whatever reason they say this is the new magical thing, is coconut water. Drink coconut water. Don't drink juice, because juice is just empty calories. Don't drink pop. You can have water, water's fine too, but coconut water has vitamins and it's low calorie and it's all these kind of things. And if you like the taste of it, and in fact I do like the taste of it, it's kind of nutty, it's okay, not everyone does. I thought, okay, perfect, coconut water. So I'm at the grocery store a couple weeks ago and they have a big sale on cans of coconut water. Oh, this is perfect. Now I can take one to work every day. So I'm not going to have juice and I'm going to be taking my coconut water in. I'm getting all this extra vitamins and all this extra stuff. Well, today I'm sitting there drinking my big can of coconut water, feeling pretty good about myself because I'm being healthy. I had a salad for lunch with a little bit of chicken in it, but I had a salad for lunch, just a tiny bit of dressing. I am I do- I was, I ran 5K last night. I ran 5K the night before. I am feeling good about this. And I'm suddenly drinking this coconut water thinking, you know, this is, this tastes a little bit sweeter than I expected. So I did what I should have done at the start of this whole episode. I decided to look on the side of the can. Let's see what's in this coconut water. Cause I'm thinking this tastes like more than just coconut water. Well, the label, by the way, had simply said coconut water, not coconut drink, not coconut punch, not coconut beverage, coconut water. I look on the side of that can of coconut water. You know what I'm drinking? And at Well, let me tell you. A can of Coke has 130 calories and 39 grams of sugar. That's a can of Coke, regular Coke. My coconut water has 200 calories and 41 grams of sugar. I am drinking something worse than a can of Coke every day under the guise of being healthy. And I got to tell you, I feel like I've been deceived, I've been tricked, and I bet you that I am not alone on this one. I bet you there are tons of people out there who have bought a product, eaten a product, in good faith that this is something that is healthy for me. It says healthy, it says organic, it says low sugar, low fat, whatever else, and then you all of a sudden... Decide, "Eh, you know what, I'm actually going to check the ingredients on this thing. And, you know, we, you have been, I have been completely hoodwinked by the coconut water people, by the coconut water, what's the word I'm looking for, cartel. I wasn't drinking something healthy. I was going to all this work to try and get myself healthy, and then I'm pouring liquid sugar into my body day after day after day thinking I am really doing something good. This I suddenly had this memory of an episode of Seinfeld where they go to the fat-free frozen yogurt stand because, again, it was fat-free. The frozen yogurt was healthy. I could eat all I wanted and it was fat free. That was what Kramer and George and Jerry and Elaine were all doing. They were going there to eat the fat free yogurt and then they, they took it to the lab and you know what they discovered? It was not fat free. There was fat in that yogurt. I feel, I genuinely feel hoodwinked by these people, by the, the coconut water lobby that is out there putting coconut water healthy sounding like they've just husk, husk, husked I can't say that word husked a coconut and poured it into my can sealed it up and sent it to hamilton ontario so i could buy it and eat healthy and drink healthy and here i am guzzling down liquid sugar more sugar than in a can of coke I almost feel like the whole thing is just conspiring against all of us who are trying to be a little healthier. How in the world? The whole thing is a giant scam to keep us all fat and out of shape. Even when you try to do the right thing now, the junk food, liquid sugar, coconut water cartel is out to get us. Now I got to read the. Thing on everything. Now I got to read everything, and I don't have time or interest in doing that. So I may just decide to just quit the gym and start eating junk food again. And just if I'm going to go down the tubes, I may as well do it knowing what's happening, right?
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: This day in 1976, Daryl Sittler, captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, scored 10 points in an NHL game. It is still a record. No one, not even Wayne Gretzky, not Mario Lemieux, nobody has ever been able to beat that mark. No one else has ever got 10 points in a game. It was against the Boston Bruins, 6 goals and 4 assists. Those of you, especially around here, Leaf fans, those of you old enough to remember that game probably still have a warm, fuzzy memory from that night because it was a pretty remarkable evening. All those points against a guy named Dave Reese was the goalie for Boston. He was the only guy, perhaps, who wasn't feeling warm and fuzzy that night. Anyway, after that game, I don't know if Daryl Sittler even knew this, but his sweater disappeared. The story later became that somehow Harold Ballard, the owner of the Leafs, had taken it and done something with it, given it to someone, but his sweater went away and disappeared for 42 years. Well, it appears that it has now been found, but how it was found and how it was determined to be that sweater is a fascinating mystery, and bit of sports archaeology. And the man who was behind this, who was able to put the pieces together, his name is Barry Mizell. He's the president of the My Gray Group, one of the world's leading sports memorabilia authenticators, who joins you now. Barry, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. How's everything? everything well, everything is great, thanks to you. Coming up with this great story. Um, walk us through this. Someone, as I understand it, walks into your store or walks up to you or something and has this batch of old sweaters that he would like you to either buy or authenticate
4: yes yes it was a collector who we've known for some time who had amassed a great collection and had asked us if we were interested in acquiring it he showed us a list and right off the bat i saw a lot of great names but the one that jumped out was daryl sittler 1975 76 toronto so once i saw that i said well we may have something here
1: how would you know? Like, why would it automatically be assumed that a shirt from that era or from that season would necessarily be the shirt from that game? Because I would have assumed well, that that shirt had gone somewhere else to a collector or to a Hall of Fame or something.
4: Well, what we've learned over the years is that uh, the game one jersey hobby from veteran collectors who've been collecting for twenty, thirty years, this is where these artifacts ended up. You, you never know, but you always think positively. One of the things we knew is that we hadn't seen the Sittler 10-point game jersey. Uh, The Hall of Fame didn't have it. These are things that were known in the hobby that that jersey hadn't surfaced. So when you see on a spreadsheet 1975-76 Toronto Maple Leafs and then you ask what color is the jersey and you hear white and you know that uh, in those eras players wore very few jerseys, we knew we had a potential great find and it was worth Taking uh, taking a look, and obviously uh, the rest is history. We uh, we got very lucky, and we found indisputable proof that this was the jersey once we started researching
1: well that's the interesting. that to me is the most interesting part about this story because it's fine to get a sweater that is from that year and it's fine to get a sweater and you believe that it may be from that game but to actually nail down for sure that it was that how do you go about doing that because you know you look at a maple leaf sweater and for most people one sweater looks like the next sweater
4: Right. And, and, and to those of us who do this for a living, and Migrate has been doing this for 21 years, so we've worked very closely with the Hall of Fame, with the National Hockey League, with a variety of teams, uh, every sweater is not alike. Every sweater is kind of like a fingerprint. One of the things we knew right off the bat, back in the 70s, the teams wore very few sweaters in each color each year. So once we determined the sweater was real, and we did that by examining the shirt and knowing the the maker of the shirt, the quality of the shirt. Right off the bat, we knew it was a game-worn jersey. Then we got a little lucky. I went to the Hall of Fame. The shirt was pretty beat up, as most of the jerseys that were game-worn in the National Hockey League were from that era, because they were worn for multiple games at a time. Was We went to uh, the Hall of Fame, and they happened to have a collection of photographs from a photographer in the Toronto area who had shot in 1975-76. And we found that the hall had in their archives uh, 72 negatives of shots from that game. I flew up; uh, our offices in New Jersey. I flew up to Toronto last week with the shirt. Hoped I could find definitive proof in the nuances, the scars, the, the imperfections in the shirt that there was an exact match. And luckily, I did. There were three. We looked for multiple, multiple. Uh, what we call points that prove it not just that the number 27 is uh, in the same position, but that the number 27 had a certain thread coming off the shirt that uh, the crest on the shirt happened to be a little crooked. And the fact that, in the, and what, what pinned it for us is that Sittler got a nice um, board burn, which in, in shirts of that variety uh, uh, will lighten the blue stripe on his left arm uh, was burned and lightened in a position. So when we found and went through these negatives, like a needle in a haystack, I found a perfect shot of him in front of the net from that game, and it was an exact match. So we put these points together and said, this is the shirt.
1: Barry, when you are doing your job and you've looked at tens of thousands of sweaters and other artifacts, are you naturally, as your default position, a pessimist or an optimist? When you first get something, do you think, okay, I'd love for this to be real, but I'm going to go with the fact that it's probably not? Or do you tend to think, man, look what I just found?
4: It's a great question, and I'm asked it a lot. So I'll tell you how, as a Game 1 jersey authenticator and as a collector, and a hockey historian and, and someone who loves hockey. Of course I wanted to be there, but it's very important for me to do my job effectively that I take a default attitude and I let the facts take me where they lead me. One of the good advantages we had here, and this is just sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't, is that the Leafs use a variety of captain Cs, really knew what different kinds of C. Um on the shirts over the course of the season. So Sittler wore a C with a large old English serif at the end of the C at one part of the season and a C without at another part of the season. So that was a big advantage in that we saw many pictures of Sittler with the wrong kind of C. But on February 7, 1976, he had a, a unique kind of C, which was on the shirt, which was in the photos, and yet again helped us to process of elimination Um, conclude that this was the shirt that led us to the fact that hey this is a shirt that's kind of unique and as i said earlier the three points of uniqueness where every shirt is kind of like a fingerprint proved it to us
1: so as you're sitting there in the hall of fame in some room somewhere and you're now doing the comparison and each of these things you're finding are you a guy who is moved to excitement when you start realizing what you're holding in front of you
4: well, I have to be professional, and decorum is important. I, I was in the I was in the resource center where other people are, are doing work. So let's just say I kept the hooting and hollering to a minimum until I uh, met with Phil Pritchard and Craig Campbell, who were there, who were uh, resource center vice presidents. And I said to them, "Can you take a look at what I just saw and tell me what you think?" And then we all started. Uh, I won't say jumping up and down, but it was a nice, polite little. Uh, celebration
1: what is the condition of the shirt because these shirts over 40 years can be tattered they can be falling apart they can be destroyed what shape is it in
4: the, sh- the shirt is in excellent shape and, and that that again was consistent with the story we had been told we had been told that there were approximately three to four owners that Harold Ballard had gifted it after the game that it had rested in a collection uh, we don't know who he gifted it to for 20 years. That it was purchased by a sports memorabilia dealer in the 1990s, who sold it to the gentleman who, cons- uh, who from whom we acquired it. So the shirt didn't move around too many times and went from collector to deal at a collector. So it stayed in very good condition, well worn condition, which helped us photo match it, but in good condition.
1: And what would something like this then be worth?
4: Well, that's the, <laughs> that's the magic number question. We believe. Uh, the, the the most expensive hockey jersey ever to be sold was the uh, 1972 Summit Series Paul Henderson right the jersey he was wearing when he scored uh, the Summit Series winning goal in Moscow and that sold for 1.275 million. I've got to believe this is 25 to 50 percent of of that number. I mean, this is one of the iconic shirts in hockey history. Uh, Sittler's ten point night was recently. Uh, voted in one of the top NHL moments during the centennial celebration. So is it 250 to 500,000 U S we'll find out but wow. Our goal right now. Our goal right now is to um, try to get it to either a collection or the Leafs themselves, a team. We want We want to share this with the hobby. This should, uh, this should not be a shirt that goes into a private collection and lives privately for many years. We would love to share this um, with the city of Toronto, with the Leafs, with you know a, a more general uh, populace, so that people can view it. It's so it's too great a shirt to just keep on wraps any longer.
1: Two quick things before I let you go, because I know you got to run. Uh, I don't know if this shirt, this I, I this artifact, had ever actually crossed your mind prior to this. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this shirt before, but with with things like this is the assumption just that they're gone and they're not going to be seen again or do you always assume that eventually these things are going to pop up if they exist somewhere
4: we always assume they're out there i mean one of the great things about our hobby and one of the great things about sports and our our culture is that people like to hold on to pieces of history so if you assume that everything can be found that everything's out there somewhere you start with the fact that you you take the uh the road wherever it may lead when you find a shirt like this. So uh, I believe every shirt is out there until you prove it otherwise. And our job, once we're given the task, is to prove that something uh, is exactly what it's purported to
1: be. So you've got the Paul Henderson shirt now looked after. You've got the Daryl Sittler shirt that you've now been able to prove. What's the, what's the the holy grail that we don't know about yet? What's the shirt that you want to walk in your door next? The
4: 1970 Bobby Orr Flying Stanley Cup. That we don't, we don't know where that is. That would be, nope, we do not know where that is.
1: Wow. And that would be, that would be more valuable even than Sittler's for sure.
4: I believe so. I believe so.
1: Well, you know what else we got to get you working on then is, uh, finding a 1925 Hamilton Tigers sweater as well. That is one of, apparently one of the great missing pieces of all time too.
4: That would be awesome. Again, uh. We'll go where the
1: facts lead us. got to find it, <laughs> Barry Mizell. I know you got to run. I really appreciate you taking some time today to do this. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Uh, you can read more about this, by the way. Go to TSN.ca. It was on TSN's website. This story, where it was originally uh, written by Frank Saravelli, it's a great story. It's a great tale. I love this stuff. I love when you have these stories. Of Whether it's sports or art or music or whatever else, movie memorabilia, stuff that has been gone, presumed gone forever, that suddenly reappears. And when I asked at the end, the reason I asked at the end about the Hamilton Tiger sweater is because probably 15 years ago, maybe more than that, Sports Illustrated did a piece in their magazine about the most valuable missing sports artifacts. The most valuable missing sports artifacts. And they included things like Muhammad Ali's Olympic gold medal, which he said that when at one point he was so frustrated he threw it into the Mississippi River that it's at the bottom of the river somewhere that someone might, ever, someone might find someday. There were other things that were in there. But one of the items that was in there was a 1925 Hamilton Tigers. Hamilton Tigers, like here. This Hamilton, Hamilton Tigers NHL sweater. You'll remember the story. The Hamilton Tigers at that time were in the NHL. We used to have an NHL team, for those who don't know this. 1925 Hamilton Tigers were in first place. They were about to go to the playoffs, and they were demanding more pay for the playoffs and the owner said no we're not paying you more for the playoffs you don't get paid for the playoffs and they went on strike and because they went on strike the owner said well too bad then you're being sold and they were sold to a guy named tex whose last name i'm forgetting right now who was down in new york they became the new york americans And Hamilton has never had an NHL team since. But the story goes that there was one known existing original 1925 Hamilton Tigers sweater that was out there. And the story further goes that it actually, within the last two decades, was in a sports card store, a sports memorabilia store in Hamilton on Barton Street, but got sold somehow or got lost or got packaged with something else. Anyway, it left the store and nobody knows where that Hamilton Tigers sweater is. Now, would that particular sweater be more valuable today than Daryl Sittler's 10-point sweater? I'm not the expert. I couldn't tell you. Seems to me that that might be a stretch. I'm not sure why it would be. Sports Illustrated said it was the most valuable missing thing. I don't know if they considered every possibility. I don't know if they knew of everything that was missing. Furthermore, would it be more valuable than Bobby Orr's flying Stanley Cup winning goal sweater against the St. Louis Blues? I would doubt that too. Tex Rickard, thank you, Ben. Yes, Tex Rickard was the man that the Hamilton Tigers were sold to in New York to became the New York Americans. I had no idea Bobby Orr's sweater was missing. No idea. But one other thing, just to point out, to wrap this story, because it's a terrific story, and again, go and read it if you want, and, and now a lot of other people have picked up a lot of other pieces of it. The guy that the guy that we were talking about there, the guy that Barry was talking at the Hall of Fame that he went to to show him after he would put this all together, a guy named Phil Pritchard. Well, you know who Phil Pritchard is, right? Phil Pritchard is the blonde guy who wears the white gloves who takes the Stanley Cup out to center ice to present the cup, the keeper of the cup, the guy who's in those MasterCard commercials, you know that guy? Who, of course, is a Burlington native. So there you go. It all comes full circle. One way or another, every story ultimately comes back to the Hamilton area. Even this one, even Daryl Sittler's 10-point night sweater somehow comes back here. I would love, I would, man, I would love to see that sweater. I would love to I don't know if anyone else finds this amazing, but I would love to just be able to touch that sweater, to touch that piece of history, because what a seminal moment in NHL history and one of the few spectacular moments in the 70s or 80s or 90s for the Leafs. What a terrific moment. Uh, go read that story. It's, it's really, really well done, and it's a terrific mystery finally solved.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.